So I think it's important for us to start looking at where we're spending our dollars and, and who's on the board of directors, who owns these companies, who's getting paid $10 million every time you make this purchase. Do they believe what you believe? Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. What gets you up in the morning? What drives your decisions? What do you stand for? No idea, not even sure where to start? I use my values to guide my life and career. It's the basis of how I've built boundaries for myself and stuck to them. Are you ready to dig into what matters to you? Go to thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet. That's thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet to get to your core values and take action on what matters most. Welcome to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm so excited to have you meet Natalie Bullen. As a coach of high achieving women, there are some things that come up that we don't like to talk about. And one of those is money and money mindset, which is generally a mindset of scarcity or a hands-off approach to money. When I met Natalie, I knew I had to have her on the podcast to talk about money mindset. Natalie Bullen is a wealth and money mindset coach from Mobile, Alabama. As the owner of Unapologetic Wealth, she teaches financial literacy, money mindset work, and sales training for introverts so that they can step into the wealth that they deserve and desire. She is also a financial advisor who shuns traditional personal finance values rooted in shame and guilt and fear and encourages followers to dream bigger, increase their prices, and magnify their gifts. We talked about shifting your money mindset creating a new money story. We also talked about how to align your money and investments to your values and your role as an advocate to your employees by being a corporate fiduciary so that they can utilize all their benefits to their fullest extent. I had a blast discussing these topics with Natalie's and she's also hilarious. So let's get started. Well, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy that we're able to connect and I want to start out. Can you please tell us a little bit more about your story? Of course. I am Natalie Bullen, a brand new entrepreneur, but for years and years um, was in corporate America. I worked in banking for seven years where I really enjoyed helping people meet their financial goals. Um, I've got an MBA in HR and I've got a bachelor's degree in business management. I got my bachelor's from Alabama A&M, go Bulldogs, and my MBA from Strayer. 
I have been in leadership and development training programs. I love doing corporate workshops for financial literacy to make sure that employees are making the most of their benefits. Um, especially in HR, we find that people have benefits, but they don't use the benefits. And I own Unapologetic Wealth, which is a coaching and consulting firm, which helps women and marginalized communities create the wealth they deserve and desire. I love it. Thank you so much. And I, I love your mission. And I knew I wanted to have you on the podcast. And I'm just so excited that you're here. So if it's okay with you, I just want to dig right in. Sure. So um, you talk about this idea of money mindset. So can you talk about kind of the common mindsets that women marginalized people have about money? For sure. I think the most common is that we're destined to be poor or middle class or kind of kind of almost like a hopelessness. Like this is what I've been given. I have this skill. I earn this much. And there's not a lot that I can do about it. There seems to be a almost a detachment from I won't say reality, that's the wrong word, but of possibility, of hope. You know, if a woman wants to have three children and the doctor says she's infertile, she'll go, no way I'm not, I'm gonna make it happen. And you'll see like that that kick-ass spirit like go into overdrive, you know? I meet people who've overcome these really incredible things. When it comes to money, we've been taught that we're bad with money, that we're bad with math, we're bad with numbers, we're not as smart as men. We don't earn as much as men, even statistics like the wage gap. Well, if you talk about the wage gap all the time, then you perpetuate that as true. Your subconscious just hears women make less than men. It doesn't hear what you're going to do about it. So I, I find often that women who work W-2 jobs feel um, trapped quite often. And so they, they settle for things that men would never settle for. Boys and girls are taught different things. Boys are taught that they can have fun and make lots of money. So they'll, you know, go from playing with toys to building rocket ships and being engineers at NASA making 250K. Women get told that they can make money or they can make an impact. It's one or the other. And so women get fielded into social work and elementary school teachers. You know, how many men do you know that are kindergarten teachers? Not many. Not many, because they don't get funneled into that, right? You're, you're more likely to have a woman that's a nurse or an administrative assistant, even in finance, a client associate. I've never met a male client associate because men go after the gusto. They're taught to be the financial advisor. Women tend to orbit around said advisor. And so I think it's also conditioning and, and patriarchy, which is probably at the root of most social woes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So what do you what do you think that we can do to shift some of the mindset that we were brought up with um, from society, from our family of origin, all of those things to 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 take a more proactive stance just before when we started the podcast, I was telling you, you know, some women that I coach, they're very well established in their careers and they're basically absent at kind of the financial table, like they might not even know when their paycheck comes in or the difference that they had from last year to this year. And they're letting somebody else kind of take the reins. How do you, how do you move from almost being absent? And then all of the things that society has kind of told us we are 
to a more proactive stance? I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge that just because society says something, it doesn't mean it's true about you. And so, okay, maybe women are or aren't good at something, but, but what are you good at? Right. So I had to actually look and say, well, Natalie, what are you good at? What can you do? Not, not what are, what can women do? Not can, what black women can do. Not what black women in Alabama, just what can Natalie do? And Natalie can look at her bank statements, <laughs> despite people thinking I was bad at math. That is something I can do. And so I think we should empower ourselves with even small steps, baby steps towards learning more about our finances. The truth is that money is a tool. It's just a neutral item that moves you forward and gives you options. That's it. So if you have negative feelings about money, it's because someone placed them there, right? A great exercise for anyone listening to employ is to think about your money story. So I want you to think about a well-known story, um, Romeo and Juliet. Everyone knows that story. You know, it's a tragedy. You know that there was a star-crossed lovers, a Mercutio, there's a battle, fencing, et cetera, fueling families. But in the end, you know that both the lovers die. It doesn't matter what interpretation, if it's a ballet, an opera, a play, even for children, even cartoons, it's a tragedy. You wouldn't go see Romeo and Juliet if you weren't expecting a tragedy. Well, some of us are living money stories that are tragedies, and we know it because they've been given to us by parents who were poor, by an ex-husband who ruined your credit. There's someone who's likely taught you this is what money does. Money corrupts. Money makes you mean. Money makes you evil. Money makes you forget where you came from. Money makes you turn your back on your friends. Have you ever had money that made you turn your back on your friends? I haven't. So that's not a story that I've written for myself. Someone else has written that story. Maybe someone who was hurt by a friend. And maybe that friend did change after they got money. Or maybe that friend just changed. Maybe it had nothing to do with the money at all. Maybe they weren't really friends, right? But because that's not your story, you don't know, but you're living it. So a lot of us are in a lived experience that's been passed down to us. I would ask someone, what would happen if you rewrote your money story? So I created a story for myself. And in my story, I'm the star. I am the protagonist of my story, okay? Natalie is a badass in this story, okay? And she's <laughs> married to a phenomenal man who is a creative genius, okay? His name is Dave. It's a wonderful story already. And Natalie and Dave have creative gifts and they have skills and they have happiness and they have joy and they have gobs of money. And they have more money than they can save, invest, give away, they have so much money and they're able to have scholarships in their name and the state and a trust fund and, and their communities are better, their friends are better and their parents are retired and they have no debt and they're able to meet a young person and have the bandwidth to mentor them because they have so much free time because their investments are making money for them and they're able to travel the world if they want and they, you know it's cold and we're both cold natured and we don't have to be cold anymore because we can go to the sunniest climb when it gets cold, we can say, you know what, honey, I'm tired of this cold. Let's fly to Panama. And he says, yes. So I've rewritten my story. It feels great because I, I win at the end. It's not a tragedy. It's a comedy. It's fun. It's lighthearted. And everyone wins. And when you when you wake up every morning and you believe you're in a, you're a I'm an actor in that play. 
how much differently I show up than if I was a, an actor in Romeo and Juliet? How much differently would I show up if I believed I was in an action comedy and not a drama tragedy? A lot of us are, are actors in someone else's play that someone else wrote a hundred years ago and we're dutifully playing it. And one day the curtain's gonna go down and it's gonna be a tragedy. And I'm just not interested in that. I vote that we rewrite our money story so that we are the victors. You can't be a victor and a victim at the same time. Oh my goodness, I love that so much. Can I go to Panama too? <laughs> no, my husband's Panamanian, so. Okay, the next person. <laughs> Oh, it's room for you. Come, please come. <laughs> but I picked it because it's warm and I'm learning Spanish and, you know, culture. <laughs> love it. I love it. You mentioned as part of your money story that you're giving to different things, to community, to mentors, yeah. all of those things. And I love that as a tool. Um, and on the podcast, we talk a lot about living a life aligned to your values. And mm -hmm. I just want um, to pick your brain on how can we use money as a tool to live out our values? Yeah, you know, my mom loves Walmart. She loves shopping at Walmart. It's her favorite store. It is walking distance from her home. It's, it's you know, plain and simple for her to understand. It's affordable for her budget. I hate Walmart. I will not support them. I do not shop there. I don't like how they treat women. I don't like how they treat their employees. And I have enough money to choose to shop somewhere else. And maybe that somewhere else is more expensive. Maybe it's Publix or maybe it's Kroger, or maybe it's Target, but I like how they treat people better. I like how they treat me better. I like what they carry in the store better. And because I'm not price sensitive, I don't care if it's 10 or 20 or 30% more than Walmart because I don't wanna support Walmart because I don't feel like they align with my values. See, but when you have excess money, you can do that. You can pick and choose. You can say, you know what? I don't want to send my children to that school where I know that there's racism or they're sharing textbooks. I want to move on a better side of town in a more expensive home so my children can get access to a better school. But in the public school system, proximity matters. The closest school to your home is the one your children get put at, period. And if it's a bad place, then it just is what it is. And that would be heartbreaking for me to know that I didn't have enough money to move somewhere to give my child a better opportunity. So I think it's important for us to start looking at where we're spending our dollars and, and who's on the board of directors, who owns these companies, who's getting paid $10 million every time you make this purchase. Do they believe what you believe? Do they believe that Black lives matter? Or do they think that we're making racism up? There are people who believe the latter. I don't want to line their pocket. But again, if there's a time in my life where I was so broke, that unfortunately, whatever the cheapest option was, was the option I had to take. And it didn't really matter what my moral value or code or what theirs was either, because I needed the goods. You know, when Trayvon Martin was, you know, slain, there was a big movement towards you know, let's buy black, let's, let's give back to our community, let's support small businesses instead of these, you know, huge conglomerates. And in the city where I reside, I say, you know what, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to purposely seek out communities of color and I'm going to purchase things. And I found that where I am, we really didn't own anything. There wasn't a grocery store. There wasn't a hardware store. 
It wasn't, you know, for like toiletries and personal care items and toothpaste and hammer and nail and clothes. And there wasn't a lot. And, and you know, it made me think, well, why is that? Was well, because we're undercapitalized, right? So it's a double-edged sword. You know, I want to support these Black businesses, but if they don't exist in the categories where I need to make a purchase, I have to have toilet paper. It's a must. It has to happen in this house, right? If there's not a store where I can buy that from that's owned by someone who looks like me, then what's my option? So I think there's 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 two sides to this coin. As you earn money, you want to make sure you shop at places that have people on the board, people who own it that are aligned with what you believe so that you are not furthering an agenda that is the antithesis of your agenda. And then you also want to have money so that you can start to create ownership so that people who want to support, allies who want to support, have something to support. And that is part of why I started my own firm. Because if there's a guy out there that's like, look, I have a young couple and they don't qualify for me because they don't have any assets under management, but I know that you take on young millennial couples, I'd love to refer them to you. I want them to have somewhere to refer to, right? So I think we have an, an obligation on both sides to ensure that we're spending money in alignment with our values. There's too much information on the internet now for us to act as though we're ignorant to the impact of our buying dollars. I love that answer so much. And you gave so many tangible ways that you can do it um, that I know that just inspires somebody to, to think about and more intentionally spend their dollars for the things that they need to buy. In addition to, you know, supporting other, you know, foundations or um, just other, other causes that align to your values. Thank you so much for that extra context. You are welcome. So what, what other things can we do as leaders? You know, we talked about, you know, you came from an HR background. I came from an HR background and you mentioned in your intro too, that people are not utilizing some of the benefits that they have at their disposal. What else kind of in this corporate culture as leaders, do you think that we can influence um, to shift some of this money mindset? I think it's important to be more transparent about money. Pay is one thing, but also about what you're doing that's working. My boss at my old job is on track to be a 401k millionaire. Now, when I got that job, I was 28 and he was 33. He was a branch manager and I was a senior banker. And we moved up the ranks together. He was promoted a couple of times and I was promoted a couple of times, but he was always my boss. <laughs> we moved in lockstep. It was really interesting. And even when I got on the wealth management side, because I was in an affluent branch, even though he wasn't my boss, he was still in my branch. It was great. And um, I worked in a cubicle and then worked in an office and then worked in a suite next to him for years. And it wasn't until one day the stock market dropped. I think it was the correction of uh, 2017, 18. It was before the pandemic. We had a sharp correction of almost 20%. And he went, oh, my God, I've lost so much money. He was freaked out the whole day. And I kept wondering myself, why is he so freaked out? Now, I have student loan debt that is considerable. I had not been contributing as much to my 401k because I was allocating more dollars towards debt repayment because that seemed to be the biggest hurdle. I wanted to buy a home, debt to income ratio, et cetera. So I had maybe 20K in my 401k at the time of this correction. I could barely tell the difference. Come to find out my boss had almost 300K 
Now I'm trying to figure out how somebody who's only five years older than me has got 10, 12, 15 X in his retirement account. But yet when we would have meetings in the morning and huddles and discussions and talk, we talk politics, see, it's never brought up. So here's the leader with a huge nest egg that could buy a home with a team of subordinates is barely putting a penny in retirement. That could have been a conversation. Hey, I'm maxing out my 401k. I advise you to really look into your retirement plans as well. Hey, this isn't financial advice, but I'm saying make sure you benefit from the company that so graciously provides us a 6% match. Instead, crickets. So I would just say if it's good enough for you, maybe, maybe, maybe hold yourself in a corporate fiduciary manner. Right. We know what a fiduciary is, somebody who has to act in the best interest of another party. Maybe instead of what we normally do, suitability, maybe we should be corporate fiduciaries and we should do what's best for our colleagues and our subordinates, not just what's OK. And so if you are using the corporate library, tell everyone about the corporate library. If you are using the daycare FSA reimbursement card. Tell everybody about the day. There's probably someone with a child in daycare who doesn't even know what an FSA is and that they could be having tax advantage dollars pay for their child's daycare. They don't know. So don't, don't be secretly stashing up wealth and moving ahead and using the resources and not telling other people. That's rooted in scarcity. Hmm. That says, if I tell other people, there won't be enough for me. But we all know that's not how corporations work. If they do a 6% match, trust me, someone has done all the math with the custodian and they could afford to give that 6% match to everyone. It doesn't have to be a secret, right? You don't want to create an inadvertent corporate caste system where there's the haves and the have-nots at work because that affects work relationships and it also um, hurts morale and eventually will increase attrition. There's lots of good reasons to ensure that everyone at work knows all of their benefits. And I was really a liaison and really a powerful champion for change in the communities and in the branches where I would go to in the morning huddle instead of talking about, you know, for the 13th time about checking accounts and ethics. Let's talk about open enrollment. What questions do you have about the insurance packages that are available to you? I'll go around one by one on my lunch break to make sure you are in the one that's best for you. That just a small gesture could make a huge difference in someone's like the lifetime value of that 6% match is millions of dollars. So one little nudge to one person could be the difference between them being able to retire or not. I think we should be corporate fiduciaries, Laura. That's the answer. I love this idea and role of corporate fiduciaries because as the leaders, we have huge budgets, right? Mm -hmm. That we are managing and we are doing that on the behalf of the company, right. which is our role. But also your role is to do that on behalf of your employees. Yeah. I love that mindset shift. Corporate fiduciary, obligation, <laughs> corporate fiduciary <laughs> for, for your employees, not just for the corporation. Yes, for your employees. We're already doing it for the corporation because the corporation is paying us and we feel obligated. But what about your staff? What about your team? What about your, your vendors? What about everyone you're in contact with? Are they doing as well as you? Do they know what you know? And if they don't, that's your obligation to inform them. A lot of this is 
there's this money mindset of, well, we just don't talk about money, Mm -hmm. right? That those old stories, but we're rewriting those. Yep. Um, So something else that um, has been a pretty hot topic is this idea of paid transparency. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to get your, your two cents. I know some, some corporations have rules against it. Some, we just, we just really don't talk about it. And especially from this idea from HR, right. Is, is, is it confidential information? Um, We talked just a bit about that LinkedIn post that was posted that recruiter who's, who said, Hey, you have to ask for what you want. I had a candidate that had 85,000 that asked for $85,000 when I could have paid her 130 and kind of the backlash that was, that was from that. So um, as leaders, what are our roles in that aspect as well for pay transparency? I think if you work for a company that will fire you for telling people what you earn, you should consider if that's in alignment with your morals and your values and whether that helps or harms women and people of color. Put that to the side. If you work for a company that is decent and will not fire you for talking about these numbers, I think it's important to discuss money. Now, do you have to co- you know, cozy up to your coworker and go, I make $36.24 an hour. What about you? No, I don't think people would tell you the truth. Although I'm not going to lie. I did that in my career. <laughs> now that I quit, I can admit that everyone in the branch knew what I made. To the pity. Every time I got a raise, I told everybody to the dollar what I made. Um, because... I think it's important for people to know what they're aspiring to. Oh, you want my job? Here's what it pays. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for people to understand that I had a whole lot more work and and structure and discipline and compliance because I made more. So there was a lot of jealousy at my branch between some of the lower level bankers and the affluent and premier bankers. And, you know, they couldn't figure out why they were getting paid 30 something and this guy's getting paid 90 something and they're all in the same branch. And I would go, well, you know, he's responsible for bringing business in the branch. If he doesn't, he's fired. You're responsible for open checking and savings accounts. If people don't walk in the door, you keep your job. He loses his. There's a difference, right? He's calling people. He's creating his own book of business. He's beating the pavement. It's a whole different level of risk. And it's an entirely different job. But until the pay came out and the responsibilities came out, there was friction. Once everybody kind of understood what everybody made and what everybody did, most of that dissipated. Then it became, oh, wow, that does sound like a lot. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have that job. And the jealousy washed away. But as long as there are these secrets, it's veiled. No one knows what anyone makes. No one knows what anybody does. You just close their door and it's all kind of vague and mysterious. Then, then that harbors curiosity at first. That's what mystery does to the human brain, right? You pick up a Sherlock Holmes novel, you're curious. But if it doesn't get resolved, you get angry. People don't like being held in suspense forever. That's why the cliffhanger is only for a commercial break (laughs) because people's attention span, you'll either move on or you'll get frustrated until the point of anger. Well, with a TV show, you can just turn the TV off, but you can't really do that at work. You're going to keep becoming confronted with these people who you know are out earning you and you don't know why. So for me, it is best to have some idea 
Um, some companies have moved to tiers, rungs, bands. Mm-hmm. So that way you don't have to come out and say, I earned $69,000. What about you? But if everyone knows this person's in E14 or everyone knows this person's in tier two, well, you know, tier two is made between 100 and 150. And you know that you're a tier one, you make between 75 and 100. And so you have an idea of, you know, if you go out for a job, is it three tiers up or is it one tier up? And you can apply accordingly. I think paid transparency helps everyone. It helps recruiters because they're not wasting their time with candidates who are either overqualified and will never take a job at that pay or people who just don't meet the salary requirement for for whatever reason. There's a litany of reasons. In In the short time I spent, most of my HR time, I was spending learning and development. But in the short time I was in recruiting, three, six months, it was like, it was a headache. It was a nightmare because I worked for a company that wouldn't let me tell them what it paid. So we would call, you know, I saw where you applied. Thank you so much for your interest. Let me do a phone screen, pass the phone screen. Perfect. Let me set you up for time with the next step. They go through the next step. That's an hour. Great. You move forward. Let me give you a personality assessment, a battery of assessments. You pass the assessments. Perfect. Here's the final interview. And that was the point at which salary was discussed at that final interview. So let's think about the candidate. They've applied online taking my phone call, taking another call on an hour, for an hour, either in person in a suit or on Zoom in a suit, and then taking, you know, Myers-Briggs version 6,000, <laughs> and it tells them they're at ENTF, and, and that's good enough, and then they take the Colby, and then they say, you know, they take like seven assessments to make sure you're not a sociopath, and then they get you in a final meeting, and you find out that an HR generalist at this firm pays 42000 and you've got six kids at home and you have a six figure job and you've taken two days off work for this interview process. We're not doing anyone a favor by hiding this number, right? What you're breeding is resentment and contempt and and a sense of, of superiority. I'm better than you, I make more than you, I don't have to tell you anything. I have the upper hand over you. And no one likes feeling that way. That, that is a bad place psychologically to enter into a negotiation I would much rather say, Laura, I saw your your resume. It's so impressive. I would love to have you in and talk to you about being a DEI manager for Verizon Wireless. The pay starts at $150,000. Are you interested? And let you decide if that's going to meet the needs of your family, your bills, and help you create generational wealth. The worst place to be is broke with a wealth mindset. Mm. It is the worst place to be. I was there so long. I had it in my brain, but I didn't have it in my bank account. It sucked. It sucked. And I would never want to willingly put somebody into a scenario like that. So I think anything we can do to to lift the veil, you know, the, the fear that we have behind pay transparency has all been debunked. You know, there's so much research out there. No one's going to break in your home and try to rob you because they find out you make 88K at work. You know, it's just not going to happen. They're not going to ask you to borrow money. And, and if they're that type of person, they probably already asked, to be honest. Someone's bold, <laughs> someone's bold enough to ask you for money that works with you. It doesn't matter what you make, man. They're just struggling. <laughs> they don't care. So pay transparency is, is beneficial to all parties involved. And the sooner we make the uncomfortable shift to it, um, like the government has done, and the education system has done, those are two really great examples of extreme pay transparency that 
to my knowledge, has never resulted in a negative experience for anyone. I've never heard about the, the rampage at the arsenal where people found out the GS-14s made more than GS-13s. It's, it's kind of <laughs> logical, 14s bigger than 13. Oh, I love it. Well, I love, I love your storytelling and all of the examples you've given us. Thank you so much, so much for your time today. You're and I, I'd love for you to tell us how we can connect with you. Yeah. If you want to hear me run my mouth more, I'm on Clubhouse a lot. Okay. <laughs> I'm on Clubhouse at Natalie Bullen. I also have a free Facebook group that is for financial education, financial empowerment, it is Unapologetic Wealth. You can find me there on Facebook. Um, and if you want to hit me up on the web and see what kind of services I offer, how I can help you, that's at nataliebullen.com. Natalie, thank you so, so much for your time and your generosity of all of this amazing, the anecdotes, the stories, and just your yourself. Uh, I've, it was a joy to hang out with you today. Thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.